Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Anytime fitness is for real people with real fitness goals. I mean, let's be honest. Most of us aren't training for marathons or half marathons or even half half marathons. Only time most of us are running at all is if we're trying to make a connecting flight. Wouldn't have been late if we didn't stop to buy a headphone dongle. Point is, you got to be ready. You do not want to deal with rebooking. Anytime fitness, where real people help you make real progress. Join today and get a plan for training, nutrition, and recovery. Hello, and welcome to our podcast, The Rest is Geschichte. Well, that burst of fluent German may well be leading you to worry that you've downloaded the wrong that podcast. Shameless. Absolutely yes, shameless. I know. Hello and welcome to Beginner's German is our, our new theme. When, when <laughs> Sasha Baron Cohen played a character called Bruno, a yes, kind of Austrian. Of <laughs> yes, yeah, yes, fashion designer, wasn't he? Yes, yes, he yes. Was. yes. <laughs> Yeah, well, thanks, Dominic. Um, uh, of course, with me is, uh, I'm Tom Holland. With me is uh, Dominic Sandbrook. And um, why the birth of Deutsch? You, we may be wondering. Um, well, because today our subject is Prussia, Germany, and the birth of the nation, which would become the most powerful European state of the 20th century. Um, and Dominic, before we get into this, I think we should try and establish the parameters, because obviously the beginnings of Prussia, uh, you know, we've got to go back to Teutonic Knights, haven't yeah. we? We've got, you know, the, the, the pagan Prussians on the shores of the Baltic. Um, so that's where I think we should begin. Well, Tom, my policy is we should, of course, you should, of course, talk about those things, but I think you should talk about them probably on your own after the podcast <laughs> is finished. And uh, in order to bolster my case that basically we should talk about what I think is the most interesting period in German history, which is when Germany is just created. So between, let's say, 1870 and, and the Second World War, we have got an excellent guest who has written a book on just this period called Blood and Iron, Katja Hoyer. We have Katja Hoyer. How exciting that is. So Katja was born in Germany. She studied at the Friedrich Schiller University. And her book, Blood and Iron, is basically all about, the, I guess, the Kaiser's Germany. So welcome, Katja. You're now based in Britain. Is that right? I am, yes. Um, so I'm, I'm in Sussex. I've lived here for about 10 years now and I've got dual citizenship as well. So I feel very much part of both uh, countries really now and, and feel very much at home here too. Well, Katja, Dominic, Dominic's going to love you because we actually did a we did a podcast earlier on the the causes of the First World War, and Dominic was rooting massively um, for an Anglo-German alliance against the French. 
I'm currently reaching for that. So. <laughs> oh, <boy. laughs> I'm sure that's something we'll, we'll come on to. And Katya, are you, do you agree with Dominic that um, we shouldn't be looking at the, the pagan Prussians or even Frederick the Great or Napoleon? <laughs> we should be going straight into, I guess, really the Franco-Prussian War is where we begin, is it? Um, well, always lead back to the 19th century as far as I'm concerned. OK, so. OK. OK, well, could I, could I begin just by, we've got a question here from Ben um, Dussault, Dussault, um, who <laughs> what the hell is Prussia? So I think that's as good, good a place to start <laughs> as any. I've never been able to find a concise, easy to understand explanation that my America-centric mind can comprehend. So I guess Ben is, ben is American, but uh, we in England as well are, are often very ignorant about um, Prussian history. So um, can you just, what the hell is Prussia? <laughs> you start off for 10. <laughs> Oh, I think in many ways, even the, you know, that, that isn't clear because of its geography, really. When you look at how uh, distributed the territory was throughout its history, that, that's part of its problem. What the hell is Prussia was, was probably asked by, you know, people that were trying to reign over it themselves. Um, when you look at A, this dualism between, you know, Brandenburg and Prussia, which then kind of merged via various um, alliances and, and marriages and, and dynasticism and other issues, even those two territories, the fact that they are miles apart from each other with huge gaps in the middle um, and later only merge into kind of one big block there near the, uh, in the north of Germany is, is in itself a problem. And then, of course, you've got so many different ethnicities there in the, in the Baltic region, um, uh, you know, trying to later on live all under one um, political entity, really. I think that in itself explains why there's such um, problems in understanding, I think, Prussia. And then, of course, the fact that it vanished um, in the in the 20th century and is, is now a, uh, an entity that doesn't exist anymore makes it more difficult as well. So in a nutshell, it's an, an area in the Baltic region in, in what is now um, the north of Poland, um, where it sort of originated. Um, and the area in Brandenburg that it merged with is in what is now northern Germany. Um, so geographically, that's where we're sort of located. Um, the name comes from the sort of original Prussian um, people that yes. do, 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 do you want to go there? Brilliant. Or the sort of Paulson people, as they're called in, in German, um, uh, who were then sort of in, in quite a horrific and, and bloody uh, conquest, sort of conquered by by the Teutonic Knights as they came back from crusade and the, and the Polish king asked them for help to deal with these um people in his northern realm that he was he was sort of struggling with and and that's sort of where the name stuck although of course the, the germanic people that then settled there weren't um the same as the original prussians if you will but the geographical name stuck um yeah and then via various different as i was saying earlier marriage alliances inheritances conquests and so on that that territory slowly merged closer and closer together there in the north um and the first sort of prussian um well, I suppose once it becomes a kingdom in 1701, you can really see it sort of all merge um, together. But even then, you could argue, you know, if Frederick the Great was still concerned about um, the kind of how spread out people were in the entire region and that there wasn't really any sense of cohesion. So even he led like a German settlement program there where he was trying to incentivize people to move there and so on to try and have a kind of densely populated, German populated um, area there to reign over. So... That question is very justified in many ways because it isn't one homogenous, nice block where people all speak the same language, look and talk the same, are the same, but it's quite a messy um, block of different kind of entities before it all gets merged together. And Katya, that raises a slightly different question. I mean, obviously, if we were doing this podcast in 1850, our listeners would have known 
kind of had a sense of what Prussia was and Prussian history and all the rest of it. But obviously Prussia then was subsumed within, well, was the key actor in, in creating something called Germany, which we're now very familiar with. Um, one of the things that your book, so your book starts with basically the creation of Germany in 1870-71. And one of the, the questions that kind of nags at me and, and is there kind of underlying your whole book is it, to the extent to which Germany was basically an artificial creation. So that there was, you know, there was an England, there was clearly a France, but how much do you think Germany was real in, and how much was it imagined and, and invented by Bismarck and the, and the first Kaiser? Well, I think the, the question is sort of split into fragments. If you ask a liberal or democratic um, minded person in the 19th century whether Germany is real, to them it was. Uh, I would say certainly since the liberation wars against Napoleon, you know, this idea that the German lands were kind of one entity and then you've got it contrasted against, say, the French people or the English people. Um, that idea was there, certainly amongst the sort of liberal elements in, in the German speaking lands. And there's always this phrase, you know, as far as the German tongue is heard, um, you know, there, there should be a Germany. So there was a sense, I think, via linguistic, um, similarities that people felt, you know, they were the same people and ought to be in the same state. And then contrasted to that, you've got all of the people who have an interest in keeping, you know, the separate German states. So people like Bismarck himself, actually, who were very much kind of minded that they were Prussians, Bavarians, Rhinelanders, Hamburgers, whatever you <laughs> always laugh at the Hamburger thing, but never mind. <laughs> um, so there, there's all of these different people who had a, a, you know, vested interest in keeping their own, um, political power and, and, and their kingdoms and their duchies intact. Um, and certainly didn't, didn't feel a sense of kind of Germanness, as it were. So throughout the 19th century, I would say it becomes more real as there are more conflicts of the German speaking lands where they're kind of in one pot against somebody else. And I think that's what defines in the end Germany um, is that it, it contrasts itself against other peoples. Cause catch it. Presumably the reason why, um, there isn't a kind of a, a sense of a German state in the way that you have England or France is because the, the, all these various German states, principalities, bishoprics, whatever, for centuries and centuries are part of the, the Holy Roman empire. And, that then gets abolished by Napoleon. And even though Napoleon is defeated, it doesn't get reanimated. And so is there a sense between the ending of the Holy Roman Empire and the emergence of what becomes the German Empire, that in a sense, people are looking around for a way to kind of reestablish a sense of unity? Or are most of the states happy to now to kind of basically be independent? I think it's a slightly, because the, the German Empire that emerges, the, the Second Reich, if you will, and it's called the Second Reich because it's trying to create some sort of, um, I suppose, a sense of continuity between the Holy Roman Empire and that. But it's much more unified in, you know, that it actually becomes a nation state um, with the centralized government. So when you look at the Holy Roman Emperor, Emperor and, and the way that he had to like almost haggle every time he wants to go to war, you know, will people actually join him? Will they actually be with him? Because there wasn't a sense that people say in Prussia were necessarily directly um, in the same, like, you know, construct or unit as, as people say in Bavaria were. And, and their interests quite often diverged completely. Whilst I think from 1871, there is more of a sense of, you know, they are now in one state and need to pull together. And I think that's, that's of course, you know, as I was trying to say in my book as well, that's of course perpetuated with this kind of constant conflict that people are trying to, to create almost artificially to try and keep the Germans together. But I don't think the, the Holy Roman Empire had that to the same extent. I think that was more of a loose 
kind of conglomerate whilst 1871 actually creates a nation sense in the actual sense of the word. In your book, though, that moment is so. So you basically describe how um, how the Second Reich is created through war. Don't you? you have three wars? They fight the Danes, um, the Austrians, who are German speaking, but are basically shut out of the the new German creation, and then the French. And you sort of, I mean, the title "Blood and Iron" is a sort of it's from Bismarck, but it's obviously you know imbued with this sort of sense that. It's all a very militaristic project and, and the army is crucial and a sense of fighting other people and all the rest of it. Do you think that makes, I don't know how, how, I don't think you do kind of sign up to the Sonderweg idea, which is that basically German, Germany had this weird special path that explains what happened to it in the 20th century. But do you think Germany's beginnings were more bloody, more militaristic and that the essence of the nation was, you know, to do with fighting in a way that it wasn't of other European nations? I certainly don't subscribe to the whole Sondervig theory in the sense that, you know, I find it slightly too deterministic for my own liking, like this idea that it was failed from the start. I think that's something I, I try to con- uh, sort of contrast in the book or kind of, you know, question in the book. Um, but I do think the problem, the inherent problem in this 1871 creation is indeed that it's based at that moment, it's based on blood and iron. I think as Bismarck was was saying it was, I think he was completely... You know, he's a very observant man and I think realized that that was the problem with it. And he himself actually, even still as late as, as 1868, he still said he doesn't think the creation of a German state is possible within this century. He was still saying three years before he did it, you know, it's going to take another three decades to do it. And that tells you everything you need to know at that. I think in that moment, it's a forced, um, way of doing it because you wouldn't have been able to get say the southern states in particular Bavaria and Baden on board because they were politically religiously in every way you want to look at it completely different from this northern German yeah. block that, that Bismarck had created um, and whilst I know there's various people in Germany who will sit there and say we didn't want to be Prussian either but I think you know in in this kind of northern block I think it was easy, easier to achieve for cultural reasons than say getting well, the very liberal people in Baden on side or the very arch Catholic people in, in Bavaria. So it, it took conquest at that point, I think. Catchy, just to turn that on, on, on its head, um, could you not also argue that, that in a way, um, Germany kind of wills itself into being not because it's a, a, a land of soldiers, but because it's a land of philosophers and the kind of the, the, the dream of nationalism, um, the kind of the idealism that you'd associate with Kant, you know, probably after Frederick the Great, the most famous Prussian before Bismarck. Um, and uh, the Brothers Grimm, the idea that, you know, the kind of identity that is deep in the forest and, and the soil and everything. I mean, that's also a very important part of how Germany kind of imagines itself into being, isn't it? Or have I got that wrong? No, I completely agree. I think that that's exactly that that dualism, you know, that I was trying to describe early, earlier between the sort of liberal elements and the and the elites. I think it's exactly the same with if you contrast the soldiers and the philosophers with each other. So there are, of course, people like Hegel, you know, Arndt, um, Kant, as you mentioned, you know, kind of where there's a long German tradition, really, of of thinking in a particular way or, or you know, political thought and, and philosophical thought in that in that sense. And people like Hegel, for instance, were actively pushing to have Germany unified as well and were part of the um, unifying forces. But I think without then the middle classes joining in with that because they wanted unification for economic reasons, really, um, and were then buying into all of those philosophical ideas, um, you know, alongside their, their economic interests, really, you get a kind of growing sense of something needs to happen, something needs to um, 
or somebody needs to basically join Germany. But I think the fact that it happened or the reason why it happened then when it happened in 1871 was down to blood and iron and Bismarck and the, and the conquest. I think eventually it would have happened in any case and probably in a different way. But as Bismarck says, probably 30, 40 years on rather than in, at that particular point in time. A regular listeners to this podcast will not be surprised. Tom asks about philosophers. Um, I want to ask a question about, <laughs> you know, I don't know, plumbers. So at what point do... You asked about um, soldiers, Dominic. I did, I did. A so militarist and a philosopher. That's the way my, that's the way my <laughs> mind works. Um, so at what point does the sort of common man and woman, at what point do they start thinking of themselves as Germans? And the re- one reason that I ask is because I've recently been reading a lot of stuff about the First World War. And it's it's really striking there how... You know, when, when uh, there are sort of Christmas truces or whatever, and people are, they're fraternizing with the British, they'll sort of, people from Baden or something will say, Oh, we're really nice and we're just like you, but the Prussians are complete monsters. And they sort of, they, it's clear there are big divisions and they think of themselves, you know, sometimes state first, country, well, maybe not country second, but they, their state identity is really important to them. At what point did, did those things cross over? So at what point did Germans think of themselves as, Germans first and Württembergers or, or Bavarians or Prussians second, if at all. Yeah, I would say it started once again with the with the Napoleonic Wars. Um, so when you look at, you know, when uh, Frederick Willem the, the, the III comes out and actually calls first on all Prussians and then on all Germans to join him, and this actually works, and then you've got really kind of unifying moments like, you know, what is now called the Battle of the Nations, like the Battle of Leipzig, um, where there's a sense that this is like a national effort almost, even though, of course, the Austrians and, and other um, sort of nations, if you will, joined in with that as well. But there is a sense that if Germans fight together, they can they can do this. They can even drive somebody, you know, like the mighty Napoleon out. So catch in a way that the, the, the paradox is that Napoleon, in a sense, is the godfather of the United States. Yeah, Germany. absolutely. And that, that is one of the, one of the great, um, you know, sort of really <laughs> moments. How, how is Napoleon Tricks ended up being a history. driver? Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Well, it started already when you think that, you know, there were over 400 little states in the Holy Roman Empire and Napoleon unified them into the 39 states that were then still left after the, the Congress of Vienna in 1815. So in many ways, he is, he is a great lever of unification, if you will. Um, and the other thing is because that this was largely a, or kind of certainly to large elements, a, a volunteer force. So you got the famous Lutzer volunteers who then gave Germany the, the colors, the, the black, uh, red and gold colors, um, on their uniforms, that kind of stuff. So the fact that this is like the people fighting, you know, rather than the state telling them they have to, they, they volunteered. There's lots of, even at that point, women, children, civilians that join in by, you know, huge volunteer campaigns and um, donating metal and all that kind of stuff. So I think Germans began to feel at the beginning of the 19th century that, you know, if they if they rally together, if they pull together against somebody distinctly foreign by their language, by their culture and so on, that there is a sense of unity. And you see that again in the 1840 French scare when, when the French king Louis-Philippe thought, you know, he's going to say he was, he was going to sort his own internal problems out by doing a bit of saber rattling. And he was, you know, disputing various territories along the River Rhine and so on. And all of a sudden you get demonstrations all over Germany. And that answers perhaps your question, uh, Dominic, about ordinary people, that this wasn't instigated by the state. There's ordinary people in 1840 going out in Baden, in Bayern, in, you know, everywhere, basically all, all over Germany, going out on the street saying, this is our river Rhine and, you know, this kind of myth of the, of the watch on the Rhine and, and all that, you know, is beginning to emerge then um, as a kind of German concept. There are now Bavarians somehow worried about what's going on, you know, at the river Rhine, which 
gives you some sort of idea that they feel a sense of connection to the people that live there, even though they're not traditionally speaking, historically speaking, in the same um, territory. So I think it's those moments of conflict, again, you know, going back to the yeah. same idea that brings ordinary people out um, and kind of gets them on, on side with the middle classes and the and the liberals in those kind of social classes that have, from an intellectual point, argued for. Can I ask a question? Sorry, Tom, I know I'm jumping in again. Uh, can I ask a question, though, about a bit of Germany or a bit of German-speaking Europe that doesn't fit in, um, which is Austria? So obviously they fight against the Austrians in order to set up Germany. But Austria has this weird place because, I mean, if you'll forgive me for saying, the single best known German of all time was Austrian. And the single greatest, you know, the man who talked more loudly anyway and more stridently about German unity and, and Germanness was an Austrian. And it's, that's always kind of puzzled me that uh, sort of Hitler must have had an accent and he must have seemed to some Germans, surely like an outsider, didn't or, or not? I mean, where does what do how does Austria fit into the kind of German imagination? Well, just briefly on the Hitler thing. Um, <laughs> again, it seems all discussion leads all discussions lead back to him. Um, but he was acutely aware of that and actually trained himself to have a, a kind of quite over the top Bavarian accent. So that that kind of really harsh accent that you hear in you know the, those speeches and things that that you see. Um, you know, mostly now on, on TV and in documentaries and stuff. That's a Bavarian accent. And he's deliberately gone out of his way to try and acquire that, you know, and right. make sure that he sounds German, German rather than Austrian German. Um, so that's one thing maybe on that one. He was quite, you know, himself quite consciously aware of that fact. Um, and then Austria is, is a weird one because they've always got, you know, with the Austro-Hungarian Empire, they've always got one foot but in the East in that sense. And if, you know, from a German unification point of view um, and with this whole, like, you know, as far as the German tongue is heard, you could have maybe had the German speaking part of Austria eventually join that in the way that Hitler did as well with, with the Anschluss. But the fact that they would have never given up the other side, you know, the sort of Eastern European side with the multitude of different peoples and languages and cultures in that, I think would have made this kind of intellectual Germanness thing that underpinned German unification to some extent, I think difficult to, you know, to sell. And, and certainly in terms of real political terms, I think it would have been difficult unless you create a, a mahusive German empire in the center of Europe, which again, you know, would have then encompassed a lot of millions of non-German ethnically and linguistically non-German uh, people. So I think that's part of what made it so difficult. And then of course the the dualism between Austria and Prussia wouldn't, wouldn't have been, solved within a, a German unit. Well, so, so much um, still to talk about. Um, I think we should take a break here. But when we come back, we've got lots of questions and um, lots more Prussian history to explore. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I'm just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm your inner dream monologue, and you're fast asleep, so I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. 
Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh. How so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products. Like buying back your Ikea items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. Hello, welcome back to uh, The Rest is History. We're talking Prussia, emergence of Germany, uh, all, all such things like that. Um, Katja, we were, we were talking about Austria and um, Germany. I, I, could I just ask you a question about Prussia as a, a state that is kind of more recent than many of the, uh, you know, the cities that line the Rhine that often go back to the kind of Roman times? Um, and th- those cities must have a sense of their antiquity, perhaps of their cultural superiority, and a sense of Prussia as a kind of parvenu. Um, is, is that an issue for Germans in the 19th century? The sense that, that do they feel perhaps rather as, as the French and the, the, the British do that the Prussians are, are kind of upstarts? Um, I think so to some extent. I mean, Bismarck himself uh, uses this metaphor. I think I talk about that in the book as well. If I haven't cut it out, no, I think it's in there. Um, he calls the uh, sort of he, he calls the Prussian ship uh, a sort of modern frigate um, and compares it to to the old um, Austrian you know ship that's much kind of slower, grander, bigger, but also about to sink. Um, and so, in many ways, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's this idea that Prussia is a, is a trim modern um industrialized entity whilst the other powers are old and crumbling and i think they they deliberately make use of that kind of lack of ancient history in that sense because it fits in doesn't it with industrialization with the military and with all of those things and i'm right i mean basically um britain is the first industrial nation but over the 19th century the british seem to spend all their time worrying that actually germany is massively overtaking them presumably because germany is um germany is by far the most industrially sophisticated country in europe it's the speed of the catch-up as well that worries everyone so when when you look at just how quickly they overtake britain and things like steel production obviously which britain hasn't naturally got all that much of um all of these kind of and coal and things like that so all of the elements really that you need for you know industry and for military as well and for the economy and so on and it's it's that that worries people so by 1914 pretty much you know you've got the second largest navy for instance in the world out of out of nothing um within just a few decades so people were looking at that wondering you know give it another 10 20 years and and see where that's going so yes i think as that's very much a, a concern is it's basically it goes back once again to the napoleonic wars when the rhineland was given to prussia in 1815 and i don't know why but nobody seems to have thought much of it the, the austrians certainly completely underestimated that they thought oh good we we got rid of that problem of having to look after the pesky Bel- belgians which you know, had been annoying the Habsburg for ages and they always needed to send troops up there to keep them at bay. And they were kind of thinking, oh, let, let Prussia do that. That's fine. And give them the Rhineland. And all of a sudden, you know, they get all the coal, iron ore and everything else there and, and end up being an industrial superpower. We, we have a question on that very theme from Nicholas Walton, who asked, was Prussia's influence over Western Germany and the subsequent 20th century misadventures all Britain's fault for its post-Napoleonic settlement? Dominic's shaking his head at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's always Britain's fault, isn't it? Go on, <laughs> gotcha. 
<laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd uh, agree with that. So it, it most definitely isn't. I mean, Britain was, quite, I mean, you know, you got to put that into context of Napoleon just having, you know, literally gone over the entire continent and, and conquered it in no time. And, and there was certainly a sense that the balance of power in Europe needed to be restored. And then you look at Austria and Austria hasn't actually changed. You know, like basically people sat there wondering, well, you couldn't keep Napoleon at bay in the state that you were in then. What's changed now? You know, what's going to happen if the French do it again? And so there was a sense that Prussia had now emerged as a um, valid, trustworthy, reliable ally on the continent. Bear in mind that they fought on the same side as well. You know, there was no reason whatsoever to uh, suspect the Prussians of uh, the the later catastrophes that would eventually ensue, you know, like literally a century later. <laughs> so to sit there and, and go, oh, this is all Britain's fault seems a bit odd. So the idea that there was another strong stabilizing force on the continent to counterbalance French French counterbalance French power was um, appealing to to all sides really in Europe. There are lots of questions about this and about Prussia, and basically hanging over a lot of these questions is World War One. So, for example, somebody called Pharaoh Man says. Prussian militarism is a well-worn cliche, so obviously it was a huge British newspaper cliche in, in the 1910s. Um, as a society, he says, was Prussia really that militaristic? And was it militaristic in ways that were completely different from other countries? And just to sort of follow up on his question, I think France proportionately had more men under arms in 1914 than Germany did. You know, France was a, a, a more obviously militaristic country, I would argue. Than, than Germany was, even though we don't really remember it that way. But anyway, Katia, you'll have your own answer. I, I think you may disagree with me, actually. You think it was very militaristic, don't you? Fairly. I think the problem is that it's uh, culturally a slightly different thing. And again, that stems from those Landwehr and, and volunteer units and the, and the Napoleonic Wars. So the moment you have a significant proportion of your country you know, as a like effectively like a militia force, it becomes, it seeps into society in a much more... Uh, it, deep-seated way i think um and that i think is part of prussia's problem is is that where it's it's located in the center of europe and where it's completely vulnerable you know throughout its history to the surrounding powers there has always been a, a huge sense of the people need to defend this or else you know they, they had the experience of things like um the well obviously the you know the the napoleonic wars but also before that um, you get the Thirty Years War, for example, completely ravaging the country. And so I think the sense of people need to be soldiers is much, much more deep-seated psychologically, I think, in Prussia than it is in, in other countries necessarily. Where in France, of course, you've got a long, long-standing and, and fine military tradition, but it's it's very much a, it's not necessarily part of society in the same way, I think, that it is in Prussia. Um, having said that, Prussia is also, on the other hand, an extremely liberal and tolerant state, and that's often forgotten and this is something i wanted to raise you know with the book as well is that um you get religious tolerance to a degree that you hardly see anywhere else in in europe you know with the um obviously starting with the or you could argue basically it's constantly in that state because it has got protestant and and catholic elements within its realm and needs to deal with that so you know you get frederick the great obviously even his father as well there's huge religious tolerance there that um leads to a flourishing of of culture um, you get this whole, you know, refugee movement from, from France with, um, French Protestants, with the Huguenots fleeing and, and, you know, masses of them coming to Britain and again, largely intellectuals and, uh, tradespeople and people like that bringing their own culture with them. So I think, you know, the fact that Prussia is also a very cultural, very intellectual, very philosophical state is often overlooked, but I don't think that necessarily takes away from the, 
on the role that the military plays. The Prussian king, or all of the Prussian kings really themselves in the 19th century are hugely concerned about that, about this um, element of like Landwehr units and, and um, militia element basically within the armed forces. At each point, it makes up something between 10 and 20%, I think, of the Prussian forces are always volunteer forces. And they're mega liberal, mega conscious of their Germanness, and they're loyal to what they see as the fatherland i.e. some construct of Germany and not Prussia. And that's kind of something that they worry about. Bismarck actually says that blood and iron speech in the context of military reforms that the uh, Prussian king is trying to push through parliament, where he wants to eradicate those volunteer units and completely restructure the Prussian military into a, a, a kind of professional force that is largely consistent of just professional soldiers rather than volunteers, because he's so concerned about their mindset and you know their loyalties that... You know, he doesn't see them as a professional armed force, basically, but as something that might potentially be a problem if, if you get another 1848 type uh, revolution. So I think it's a bit of both and, and it seems a contrast but or a, or a kind of conflict between the two, but it's not necessarily one. OK, well, kind of on that theme, we've got a question from Robert Gowers, who asks, how much merit is there to the idea held by Conrad Adenauer that Germany could only become a truly democratic country if its Prussian influences or Prussianism were removed um, and just to kind of slightly put a spin on that question, um, it's almost impossible, isn't it, to look at the history of 19th century Germany and Prussia specifically without an awareness of what happens with Nazi Germany. And do you think without without that catastrophe, our sense of Prussia would be different, that we would kind of emphasise perhaps a bit more the, the way that, you know, the, the incredible liberal strains within it is incredible intellectual and cultural achievements rather than the image of, um, you know, spiked helmets and goose stepping and, and so on, <laughs> which is, is what certainly in this country, and you must be more than very aware of this, is what tends to get emphasized. Yeah, indeed. I think we're partially falling into the trap of, of listening to Nazi propaganda with that as well. I think, um, I mean, the way that, yeah. this, the way that, um, Hitler directly, you know, tried to put himself just, you know, with the very word, the Third Reich going there and, and sort of saying, oh, this is now the successor state to the Second Reich, which in turn is the successor state to the first. And quite famously, you know, he had that portrait of, of Frederick the Great down in the, in the bunker with him in the last days in Berlin in, in 1945 and, and all of that. So I think to some extent, it's the Nazis' own propaganda that sought to, um, draw a, a line there, basically a straight line from, from Prussia to the Nazis. Um, you have the day of Potsdam, of course, you know, which Hitler again uses as a, as a means of, of drawing continuity between Prussia and, and. So what is that? I don't, I don't know about that. So the day of Potsdam was Hitler's way of, of getting Hindenburg's approval, uh, for his, for his reign in public. Um, and so they basically meet up, um, in public and Hindenburg's shaking Hitler's hands. Um, and you have this, this kind of Prussian insignia everywhere. So rather than having the Nazi flags kind of, you know, plastered all over the place, they're using a lot of sort of iron crosses and, and sort of Prussian insignia really to try and, and draw a similarity there. And this is somewhat ironic given that Franz von Papen had actually abolished practically abolished Prussia in the uh, in the sort of so-called Prussian coup in 1932, where he literally um, integrated it using Article 48, literally integrated it into the German kind of federal system in a way that practically abolished it. So in many ways, people always talk about the abolishment of Prussia in, in 1947. In many ways, it got abolished in, in 1932. And yet Hitler is keen to 
he doesn't restore that. So Hitler sticks with the centralized state, you know, and doesn't allow Prussia any power back itself. Um, but nonetheless likes the idea of, you know, there was always militarism there. So we're a militaristic society. So let's stick with that. And I think that's stuck because of Hitler's uh, brilliant propaganda in, in the, in the sense of it, you know, it's, it's effect on people. I think that's, that's echoed through the ages and we still have that now, I think. But, but the military opposition to Hitler, I mean, that was kind of Prussian as well, wasn't it? Yeah, I think both the, both the loyalty and the, um, you know, this kind of misplaced, misplaced sense of loyalty that Prussian officers, officers felt due to their, you know, sense of obedience and duty and all of that, basically, to them, their kind of ethos as a military is they're like the watchdog, basically, of the state. They don't get involved in politics. They do what they're, what they're told and they do it well. And that's, I think, partially, you know, responsible for the devastation caused in the, in the Second World War. And then on the flip side, you've also got, of course, huge Prussian opposition as, as per July plot, um, in 1944. So in many ways, you can see both elements there. I think a Prussian conscience and the Prussian, um, sense of, of duty and obedience, both, uh, leading to, you know, what we see in the Second World War. I want to just follow up Katia on Tom's question. I, I agree, by the way, that with what Tom said that you, I mean, it's impossible really to talk about German history without the, the, even if you try to banish it, you know, that the, the specter of Nazism is kind of hanging over you to some extent as a, as a historian. But also, I think the First World War too, because, you know, the sort of the discussion about, um, Germany being flawed from the outset and Germany being militaristic. I mean, that didn't begin in, in the Second World War. That was all there in British. Propaganda, particularly um, in the mid middle of the First World War, that the Germans were uniquely, you know, rapacious or greedy and and sort of enslaved by their generals and all this sort of stuff. And and hanging over a lot of the questions from the listeners is basically Prussian and German responsibility for World War One. Now we talked had a podcast that generated tons of discussion about the causes of World War One, and I'm wondering, in your book, you you seem to to go along with the idea that ultimately you think it's Germany's fault or that Germany bears a huge share of the responsibility for the war, that it is the blank check, you know, the Kaiser's ambitions, all this sort of stuff. Um, do you want to say a bit more about that? Do you think it was Germany's fault, the First World War? Well, what I was, I was trying to see it from a German perspective, and I think um, I wouldn't go as far as to say it is Germany's fault in the sense that they were deliberately causing... A, a world war, but I do think they were taking the view that conflict was helpful for the internal divisions that were still there. So Bismarck had tried his best, obviously, for better or worse, with his various different policies to unite Germans, but it was blatantly obvious by the time that Willem came into power that socially, culturally, religiously, Germans were still hugely divided and that realm was constantly at risk of breaking apart. And I think when in, when it became more obvious that that conflict in some shape or form could be lived again, you know, bearing in mind that there hadn't been a war since the Franco-Prussian War, and, and that was by that time, what, four decades, more than four decades away, they mm. needed something. Um, otherwise, that, that realm was breaking apart. There was this, you know, famous period that, that's often called, um, well, we, you can see it as stagnation, really, if you want to, but it was certainly almost a crisis from, from about 1912 to 1914. Um, you know, whilst it didn't seem that way, there were no great uprisings or anything like that. But there was complete standstill in the Reichstag. Um, the, the trade unions were swelling in ranks. There was some sort of sense that a crisis internally was about to erupt. And I think Wilhelm and the militaries accepted that 
they needed something to do to to deal with that, and the war seemed seemed a good idea in that sense. So, and you but, know, bearing in mind as well that the First World War is, is on a scale that people just hadn't anticipated. They literally just thought they were going to have another, I think, sort of 1870 or maybe a bit bigger in the Balkans, and that would be the end of that. Willem in particular was so deluded about the fact that Britain wouldn't get involved, surely not his family and all the rest of it, that I think, you know, if you want to put the blame on them for that, yes, but I don't think they were willingly walking into a world war, with the possible exception, actually, of Moltke, maybe, because he had this thing about being Moltke the Younger and, and needing to step into the footsteps of his famous uncle, Moltke the Elder, who'd kind of made his name in the Franco-Prussian War. So I think with him, there's a bit more ambition there than... And do you think we're too hard generally on the Kaiser, on Wilhelm II? Do you think we, you know, he's basically a, a, a slightly pitiful comic figure, isn't he? Rather than this sort of all-conquering spiked helmet kind of... Uh, I'd go with that, yeah. Um, I mean, I, that's not to absolve him from his responsibility and from his, you know, from what he effectively did. I mean, the buck stops with him ultimately. He's, the, he's not only the head of state, but also the, um, you know, commander-in-chief of the armed forces. So he could have put his foot down, I suppose. Um, but then when you look at just intellectually, I think he neither had the capability nor the patience to actually sit there and work it all out. So I think in many ways, I wouldn't say he was played by the militaries, but he was certainly not, I think, capable of of seeing the the bigger picture of this and, and just allowed himself to be, um, I don't know, kind of intrigued, I guess, by by the prospect of war and by, by being able to try all of his new shiny toys that he'd been developing in the last sort of 10, 20 years. I think that's a huge aspect is is, is fast, childlike fascination for all things technological and military and, and things. Not not only military, but he loved his technology as well. And to sit there with all of those new, you know, Dreadnought-class ships and whatever, and he sits there and, and wonders, you know, what, what will yeah. they actually do? What will it be like? And, you know, that I wouldn't underestimate as a psychological factor that he just wanted to see it live and, and in action. <laughs> And and he wore the wrong yachting shoes to cows, didn't he? <laughs> Which I'm sure had a devastating psychological effect on Tom. This is this is something deeply rooted in your own subconscious. Clearly, cause this I, is the second time in these podcasts that you mentioned the it's, issue of yachting well, I'll shoes. What, I'll tell you what it is. I I, I had a friend who's um, at school whose father was um, a, a, command, a captain to ship in the Falklands, and um, one of the perks is that you could get a yacht and sail around the Isle of Wight. And it was one of the worst four days of my life. I was constantly <laughs> seasick. And I remember we pulled into the harbour at Cows and I looked at people kind of walking up and down the, uh, the quay. And I, I've never felt as jealous of anyone. And I, I've always felt some fellow feeling with the, with the Kaiser who turned up yeah. and had a miserable time at Cows. <laughs> but enough of, enough of me and the Kaiser. Um, Catch one, one person who I think we perhaps haven't talked about enough. Uh, and, um, is Bismarck. And I wonder, how how influential is Bismarck on this? Um, we, we have a question from Pat Cooper, who says, if Bismarck had come 30 years earlier, would we have been talking about a global Prussian-German empire rather than a British empire? I mean, I guess that, that's kind of bundling into the idea of, of um, German ambitions overseas that perhaps we could also look at. But more generally, um, it, you know, is, is Bismarck an illustration of the great man theory or um, is he born on a kind of Hegelian tide of... You know, the spirit of the, he's, he's merely the spokesman for the spirit of the age and it will all If you were talking anyway. about Hegelian tides at cows, Tom, I'm not surprised that you didn't fit <laughs> in with the yachting fraternity. Make sure you're wearing the right shoes for that <laughs> one. Right. I was, I, yes, I was debagged. <laughs> um, I think if ever there was an example that that theory, the great man theory still has any validity, I think Bismarck must surely be it. I mean, it's, it's hard to see 
um, how things would have panned out the same way without him. Um, it's just a sheer audacity to do what he did, I think, when everybody else looked at it and went, no, that's not possible. You can't do it. Um, you know, starting with, with that speech, with that blood and iron speech, when you look at uh, Willem had struggled with so, t- so tell us about that, What for, for, for those who may not be familiar yeah, so with in, it, in, which is me. In, <laughs> in the 18th, so Bismarck was actually um, in um, France. He was the ambassador to France in 1861. And that, there's a reason for that, because Willem, had only, Willem I, who would later become the German Kaiser, had only just become the king of Prussia. And was a bit frightened of this kind of quite outrageous, you know, Prussian aristocrat who's very outspoken and, and very direct and didn't seem to have any respect for anyone really. And so he sent him off first to St. Petersburg and then to, to uh, France as the ambassador, you know, so he'd be kind of safely tucked away, but he was good at diplomacy. So it kind of worked both ways. And. Um, but he struggled with, um, with parliament internally, with the Prussian parliament, because he needed to reform the, the army, as I was saying, to get rid of those volunteer units who seemed quite, quite dangerous. And parliament was obviously at that point, you know, full of liberals. So they were sat there going, absolutely not, because these people are on our side and they're kind of our lever to get the king to do what we want the king to do. So that led to such desperation that Willem was actually on the brink of abdicating. And thought at that point, you know, I can't do this. I need to hand over to um, Frederick, what will later become Frederick III, much more liberal in this in this mindset, married to Queen Victoria's oldest daughter, Vicky. So that would have worked because Parliament would have, you know, got on with them and they would have kind of pulled in the same direction. And it's at that point, when you look at the influence that Bismarck has, he pulls them back from, from France. He comes back and just tells Parliament, well, no, we are reforming the military, whether you want to or not. And illegally goes ahead against the constitution, goes ahead and just does it. And parliament just sit there and go, you can't do that. It's against the law. And he goes, well, try and stop me. What are you going to do? And just does it. You know, it's in that context that he tells them with that blood and iron speech, I'm sorry, but it's not your speeches, not your niceties, not your legalities that people will respect about Prussia. It's force. It's blood and iron. We need to have this army. And so he just does it. He actually reigns without parliamentary approval for that budget until I think it's 19, sorry, 1874, I think, when he finally actually goes back to Parliament after Germany had been created and says, oh, can you just approve my budget in hindsight, please, for all of those years that I've reigned without it? And they, at that point, they haven't got a choice. They just go with it. And it's kind of made legal in, in uh, hindsight afterwards. Um, so there, for instance, you know, there's the king is in despair. The king sits there and thinks he has to listen to parliament. And it's Bismarck that comes back and goes, well, what are they going to do? Let's just not bother. Um, and builds that army and fights those unification wars. And it's the same with, with the Franco-Prussian war. It's hard to see how anybody else would have had the audacity to provoke the French to the degree that he did so that they would actually attack knowing full well they can't win the war. I mean, how do you provoke a country in attacking another country when that country is perfectly aware of the fact that they have two thirds, as they phrased it, of everything that, that Germany had. One third, sorry, they, they had this kind of weird idea that everything that the French have, the Germans have two things of, um, be that people, money, anything. So, you know, those, those two things alone, I think, just show his individual actions and the, and the consequences that they had for better or worse, however you want to see that. But he's certainly an influential figure. And without him, <clears throat> the, I think the wars wouldn't have happened then and how they happened. And Germany wouldn't have been unified in 1871 with all the consequences that that had. Katia, we're running a, a bit out of time, I reckon. Um, but I really wanted to ask, um, because it's a huge question, about Germany's relationship now with its past. 
Um, when most ordinary Germans, I'm not talking about historians or intellectuals, but most ordinary Germans look at their own past or think about Germany, do they still do so with any sense of, um, of sort of trauma or guilt? Or, or do they now regard it as other European countries regard their own past as something that is, you know, is gone, belongs to somebody else, and they don't need to sort of beat themselves up about it anymore? What, specifically about Prussia or just all uh, of it? <laughs> about, well, I mean, Germany's history, you know, defeated in two world wars, incredibly traumatically, you know, revolution in 1919, the Weimar Republic, which we haven't really talked about at all, which is a fantastic, <clears throat> interesting subject, but obviously so difficult and conflicted. And then, of course, the experience of the Third Reich. I mean, that's so utterly different from how Britain thinks about mm. the 20th century. I mean, that's the story of uh, very contrasting relationships with Europe. Yeah. to some extent. Um, and I'm wondering, do Germans now contemplate that story with equanimity rather than with sort of breast beating and, and shame and, and all the rest of it? Well, I think, I mean, in a recent article, I called the Second World War this black hole in German history that sucks everything into it that came before and after. And I think that's still very much the case. Um, everything seemingly before 19. 19- 33 leads up to that and everything after 1945 goes back to it and I think that's still very much the case when I was at school I had to learn about the Nazis like three times so we started at some point in year eight and then revisited it at GCSE level and then again at A level and at some point you're like well I know everything about that now can we do something else please um so there there is that sense that I think that it needs to be explained, needs to be explored, needs to be um, reminded of, uh, or people need to be reminded of it. Um, and I think, you know, when you look at the fact that this year is the 150th anniversary of, of 1871, of the effectively the beginning of the German state, there's no, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have expected like celebrations or anything, but there isn't even uh, sort of any, you know, like you normally expect, say, with the with the Russian Revolution, there was loads um, of museums and speeches mm. and books and publications and whatnot. Um, and there's very, very little in Germany. There's a little bit on the Franco-Prussian War specifically, but not on the fact that Germany was founded then, because people don't really know what to do with that legacy. The moment you commemorate it, you've got to interpret yeah. it in some way. And then, you know, what you do, as you say, all, always lead back to, to both of those wars and, and you end up once again discussing it in that, in that light. Um, yeah. And Bismarck is perhaps a good example of that. He's, he's very, very difficult for a lot of Germans to deal with because yes, on the one hand side, you know, he created the welfare state and, and you, you've got all of those kind of achievements. Um, but then people sit there and go, Oh, but he only did it because of, you know, the threat of socialism and all the rest of it. So there's always, you know, even with Bismarck, there's a huge amount of ambiguity there and, and people don't really know what to do with him. So he's just got ignored more and more, I find, in, in sort of certainly in the in the 90s and early 2000s. It seems to be coming back a little bit now again, the, the attention on, on Bismarck. But Wilhelm as well, you know, you've got two big Wilhelm biographers. One one is Rule, who's British. The other the other one is yeah. Christopher Clark, who's Australian. Rule you know, hates uh, Wilhelm, doesn't he? I mean, he absolutely hates him. I find that a bit interesting with Clark as well, when both in this Prussia book and in the in the villain biography, he starts off not wanting to like both of them, I feel. And then kind of as he did his research and as he carried on writing about them, becomes a little bit more um, sympathetic towards them. But I find it interesting that no German historian wants to touch villain with a barge pole. That's, you know... Yes, there is a lot of yeah. Prussian history, but that always focuses on, you know, Frederick the Great and, and those supposedly good Prussian days and years. And, and then it's again, you know, let's go back to Prussian militarism and see how it, how it led to the First World War and then the Second World War. 
Well, Katya, I, ca- I can't thank you enough. I mean, you said the Second World War is a kind of black hole in in German history, but I think you've really done brilliantly in keeping us from falling too <laughs> deeply into that black hole. It's been so interesting to talk, you know, to try and look at Prussia kind of through the eyes of 19th century, I guess, rather than rather than the mid 20th century. So can't thank you enough. I uh, can't thank everyone. Thanks to everyone um, else for listening today. Uh, at the moment, we're releasing podcasts twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays, and I hope with subjects broad enough to appeal to most tastes. So auf Wiedersehen. Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs> Auf Wiedersehen. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.